Psalm 85, 1 through 13. Lord, you were favorable to the land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God, the Lord, will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to his folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, Lord, will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day, and thank you for um, just the beautiful cold weather and the life that it can bring. Um, dear God, I just pray for our hearts to open this morning and put away any um, distractions. Um, pray that we'd really focus on what Kevin is saying and um, that you would um, guide his words to speak truth into our lives. And just say amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we're in uh, week two of our Advent series this morning. And I kind of explained a little bit about uh, what Advent is as a season and how it's kind of steeped in tradition for uh, the church, which is really in reality, whether you guys real realize this or not, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know, you have a family heritage of almost 2,000 years of faithful men and women who loved Jesus and sought to make his name made great to the nations. And that we are simply just the legacy of, of generations of faithful men and women who loved God and made sure that the gospel advanced. And we talked about how Advent has been a time traditionally for the church to really kind of try to do two things. You know, in every, every denomination, uh, every church kind of has their own traditions when it comes to this particular season, but all of them are centered around focusing in on these two things as they enter into the month of December to prepare for Christmas, and that's this. One, that for thousands of years before the arrival of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, that faithful men and women of Israel longed for the arrival of the Messiah, that they prayed and longed for him. And number two, that as Christians post Jesus' birth and then his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that as a church during this season, we reflect and hope in the promises of Jesus' second coming that all will be set right, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that Jesus is currently now reconciling all things to the Father in Christ, and that we are a part of God's workmanship as he does that, reconciling all things to himself. That's not just people, but creation itself is being reconciled and restored to the shalom that God had originally designed for it to be. And so this is a season both of reflection and thankfulness that God did what he said he would do for Israel, but also to hope 
and what God is going to do. And last week in Isaiah 64, we saw that Isaiah longed for God, that he longed on behalf of his people for the presence of God, the felt presence of God to move in Israel once again that they might experience his power, that they might experience his forgiveness, that he, they might experience his presence, and lastly, that they might experience his mercy afresh. The way that a potter remolds clay, Isaiah begged of God's presence to move in Israel so they might be remolded into a people that love God and advance his name. And so last week we used that text as an opportunity to both encourage us, but also to call us to worship, to ask God to move, to ask that his presence would meet us over the course of the next several weeks, but really for the remainder of our time on this earth, and that in this season preparing for Christmas with so many distractions that we might worship and rejoice him because he is the reason that we celebrate Christmas to begin with. And that we might rejoice in what he has done, but also what he will do as a hopeful expectation. And so this morning we're going to be in Psalm 85. We had Lois just read that for you uh, this morning. And we're going to see a repeat of a lot of last week's themes in our text this morning. Um, but there are a few big things I want to make sure we take away from the text this morning. Uh, let me start with this, though. Let me give you a little bit of background on Psalm 85. Psalm 85 was originally written as a prayer or a call to worship for the people of Israel in the tabernacle. Um, it was written by the sons of Korah. Some of you guys will have a Bible that will actually explain that to you. Some Bibles will tell you who actually wrote the particular psalm that you are reading. Um, and the, the, the sons of Korah were a, a, a very interesting group. I, as a matter of fact, if you understand anything about Old Testament history, the sons of Korah are actually a, a beautiful testament to the faithfulness and mercy of God to his people. Um, if you understand anything about the, the time of the exodus for the nation of Israel, um, as Moses led the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he gave kind of speci specific jobs to a particular tribe um, of Israel called the Levites. And their, their job was to, to exercise the office of the priesthood for the nation of Israel. And so their, their job was to offer sacrifices, to petition to God on behalf of the nation of Israel for the, for the sins that Israel was committing in their transgressions against God as his people. And so uh, the, one of the, the chief priests during that time was this guy named Aaron. And Korah, um, the, the sons of, uh, of Korah were the, the great-grandsons of Aaron. And their father was this guy named Kohath. And, and basically what happened is once the tribe of Levi kind of grew and the sons of Aaron kind of grew in number, certain uh, family lines got certain jobs. And Kohath's family line... Um, didn't particularly care for the job that they had been given because they had to actually carry the Ark of the Covenant with them 
as they moved through the wilderness. So it was heavy and wasn't something that was particularly fun to do. And so uh, they began to covet what some of their other brothers had to do, and they ended up with this, this great-grandson of Aaron named Korah, the, su- the son of Kohath, ended up actually rebelling against Moses and Israel because he didn't like the work that they had to do. They didn't like the particular job had call- God, that God had called for them to do. And if you're familiar with the story, it's kind of one of those like strange moments where you see God's full power on display. The sons of Korah rebel before Moses, and Moses is like, look, I'm not interested in arguing with you guys. Here's what we'll do. If you think that I am not supposed to be leading you and that the, the, the word of the Lord that has been given to me is not true, right? here's what's going to happen. If you die of natural causes and we live out the next several years here, we know that I'm a liar and that God has not spoken to me. But if God has truly spoken to me, here's what's going to happen. The earth is going to open up and just suck you in. And so the nation of Israel is like, okay, we agree to that. And immediately the earth <laughs> opens up, right? And Korah and his, those that are rebelling with him die on the spot being just sucked up by the earth. Now, don't ask me specifically what that looked like. I don't know if it was quicksand. I don't know if there was an earthquake. I don't know exactly what God did. But the word records that the rebellion was ended immediately and the people began to worship and exalt God because his power was on display. Now, here's what's really interesting, right, as we think about this. Right. Korah is this man who led this rebellion against God's chosen leader for Israel and rebelled against what God had called them to do. And yet there's a faithful remnant amongst his sons who continued to love God, to pursue him, to worship him, and to follow him according to all that God had commanded. And they write quite a few of the Psalms, that their job was the doorkeepers to the tabernacle. And one of those men that kind of came from that line is actually Samuel. And then when the, the temple, right, was being constructed before then, right, David had set the tabernacle up in a permanent place and that during this time is when many of these songs were written in thankfulness to what God had done. And so the sons of Korah who kind of led worship at the tabernacle for the nation of Israel write this psalm, and you'll notice that the first seven verses are written as a responsive kind of call to worship of the people of Israel. But then you'll notice in the last six verses is a response kind of particularly for the people who are writing the psalm. The psalmist himself is responding to God's favor and what they see in the Lord. And so Psalm 85 is broken up into four paragraphs, but three parts. The first three verses, what you'll see is this idea of the, the psalmist is calling the nation of Israel to remember the blessings that God has given them to reflect on all that God has done. Then you'll notice in verses four through seven in the second paragraph, you'll see instead the call of the people is to request God's blessing again on them as a people. That they've reflected on and remembered on what he's done and then they're gonna request God to show himself again. And then the third point you'll see in verses eight through 13 is the psalmist kind of sitting back and reflecting on what they've just done, and he's resting 
in belief that God's blessing will come forth, both in the present and in the future. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look at the text more closely. Let's pray. God, might you meet us here today as we study your word. Lord, grant us the strength to believe and let Christ dwell deep within our hearts. May we see him as the prize and treasure that this life offers. Lord, may we hear your word. And Father, we request your presence so that we might see you in our midst and so that we might see revival of your people in our day. And that out of that deep, abiding love for you, the gospel would press forward in our city and around the globe. Father, we wait for you to move and we ask that we might rejoice in your word this morning we ask this all in jesus name amen who's ready for christmas okay like six of you okay well you're doing better than me um yeah i first of all i never really feel ready um you know, because I'm always like, did I get the right gift, or did I spend enough, or did I do the right things, right? You know, you never notice how, like, Christmas is this great, this great time, like, we're supposed to be giving gifts, and instead it becomes this time of, like, um, like gift capital, if I, if I can use that term, right? Like, you know, like, anybody ever see The Office, and they do uh, Christmas, and Michael buys the $200 iPod for Ryan, right? And then Phyllis gives him the oven mitt that she knitted herself, and Ryan, and Michael's like, he turns Christmas into this investment capital game of how much someone might love him. He's like, and he pulls the glove out. He's like, apparently Phyllis thinks that, I, that she only loves me this much because I only saved the, the company this much this year. And then she goes, how is that better than an iPod? Well, it wasn't supposed to be that way, right, to begin with. Right? But we tend to do that, right? You know, like if someone gets you a gift, you ever notice this, right? You could realize real quickly how you view Christmas. If someone gets you a gift that you weren't expecting to get you a gift, where does your heart run? <gasps> right? You're not, like, thankful for the gift. You're in fear because you have nothing to give in return to that person, right? We've turned gift giving into this, you know, relational game of how close that relationship is or how good that relationship is. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably like most of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm preparing for this season. I, I feel like I'm failing. And especially around the holiday time, it, it, it becomes more evident, right, when you start kind of reflecting on the past year and reflecting on all that this season has, how quickly it is to see that you might come short. Right? And, and, and to be honest, this past week, Right, as I was sitting and reflecting and, and planning for a lot of what I believe God might want for us as a church family in 2018, I went to a place where I even began to question, you know, is God in this? Is, is God in what we're doing here? Is God in the, 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 the business of continuing to make us as a church family grow as disciples of Jesus Christ so that we might make much of his name here in Gainesville. 
Have, have I in some way as a pastor and have we as the, the elders of this church squandered God's grace in all of this? Am, or, am I trying to do this on my own? Am I trying to lead this church? Am I trying to shepherd my family without the grace of God being at the forefront? And I think as, as, you, as you read Psalm 85, I, the sons of Korah seem to be at a similar crossroads. That they stand kind of before God's people knowing that they're supposed to be leading them in worship. And, and they, they're like, are we heading in the right direction? What are we doing? What are we doing right now? That we, we know that we need God's presence. Are we even seeking that properly? Are we in the midst of our failures and need looking and seeing the presence of God the way that Isaiah begged for it to come down as we saw last week? And so if you look at Psalm 85, right, look at the posture of the sons of Korah as they begin to lead Israel in this prayer and song of worship. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. I love that in the midst of this tension and transition that they're in, the first thing they do is call on the people to remember what God has done. Like, look, look at the language here, right? Verse 1, you restored God. You restored Jacob. They knew Israel was constantly failing God, constantly failing God in his covenant mandate to them as a people to walk uprightly before the Lord and amongst the nations. They knew that they had failed. And yet they knew that time and time again, God had restored Israel to its glory so that they might declare the riches of God's mercy to the world around them. They're reminding the people, we fail consistently, and yet God does not. And not only does he restore us, look at verse 2, he covers us in our sin. That Israel has rejected and stood up against God's mandate towards them. And yet God has covered their sin. That he has hidden their sin. And instead, right, as we see in verse 3, withdrawn his anger. Now frequently for us, as a, a, a people of God and his church, right, there's a tendency for us to look at the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and kind of treat them as two separate beings. Right? The God of the Old Testament is this God who pull, pours down his wrath, 
right, who's constantly angry and demanding justice because God's people have rebelled. And then we move to the New Testament and we see God as the God of mercy and love who pours out his love. And yet the sons of Korah invite us to, re- to remember the God of the Bible has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that his love that he shows us so beautifully in Christ is the same love that he demonstrated time and time again for the people of Israel. That he time and time again moved from pouring out his wrath on Israel and instead moved to a place of covering their iniquity. And so the sons of Sephora cry out to the people of Israel as they worship in the tabernacle, God, we have seen your love on display in the past, and we long for it. We long to see your mercy made manifest before us again. I love how throughout the scripture, right, When God speaks of the way that he relates to his people, he uses the language of a loving father. That relationally we can understand our relationship to God as a father who loves and cares for us and desires to parent us. Now, now here's the thing, right? I, I know when we start talking about relational language to describe God, especially using a term like father, it can be difficult for some of us, right? Some of us didn't have great relationships with our fathers growing up. I I am one of them. My relationship with my father was rocky at best till probably I was 21 or 22. And so I get it, right? Much of my, my relationship with my dad growing up was, you know, my dad was authoritarian, and he disciplined, typically without grace or mercy. And so my relationship with my father was kind of one that was built around this idea of I can never do enough to please him. And so when we start talking about this relational aspect of God as father, there's a part of me that starts having trouble reconciling that. But then I'm blessed enough to be a dad myself. And I, and I was trying to kind of wrestle with this idea of God's mercy being bestowed upon Israel over and over again, even relationally, like a father. And as a dad, I was trying to kind of think through this. as like, as a dad, I don't think there's anything my children could do that would destroy my love for them. Don't get me wrong. They try really hard sometimes. And... They're not even teenagers yet. I can only imagine that when they hit their teenage years, right, the effort that's going to be put on display by them to to put that to the test. Does dad really love us? Does dad really care for us? Is dad really going to go to bat for us? And, And in those seasons where my sons try to to test whether dad really does love me. Right? I'm reminded that frequently, by God's grace, 
I extend mercy and grace to them. And frequently, if they're walking into a difficulty, I try to meet that head on for them. So that our relationship can be restored. This is the God of the Bible. That he puts his love on display consistently for you and I, even when we reject him as father. That Israel consistently throughout the Old Testament rejects God as their father and turns their gaze and their love somewhere else. They might turn it to wanting a king that will lead them to political prosperity. They might turn their gaze to wanting money and and finances. They might turn their gaze to marrying those that God told them not to marry and seeking love and attention, right, from relationships and finding value in those things. And as we see all of this, The sons of Korah said, this is not new for us, God. The season we find ourselves in as a nation is one that you have seen us walk ourselves into before, and yet we remember in the past, you moved. You acted. You covered our iniquities. You restored our fortunes. You turned away your wrath. God, we remember and we long for it. We long for you to move. If we want the presence of God to move in our lives and our church, it starts with remembering our need for Him. There is a tendency for us in Western culture to see our plight much like the sons of Korah did and yet seek to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps to go to work, to dig in, and fight. And the language of Scripture over and over again is that we are not the ones who fight, but God is the one who fights for us. And so the psalmist invites us to remember all that God has done and he invites us to remember all that God has done because we as a people have the benefit of being a couple thousand years further into human history seeing the faithfulness of God on display again and again and as the psalmist invites us to remember the beauty of what God has done he then moves us on and says God we know what you have done we are now going to request and ask that you move look at what he says in verses 4 through 7 Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you, Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. He shifts 
from remembering what God has done in the past to requesting that God might move in the present. He says, restore us again, Lord. Put away your indignation towards us and don't be upset, but cover our iniquities the way you have in the past, right? To use the father analogy from earlier, dad, we loved you, then we turned from you, then you restored us again, and now we have turned away from you again. We need you to restore us again, dad. We need you to move. We had our gaze on you. We let our gaze be taken away. You restored us, and our gaze got turned again. Restore us. It's like the story of the prodigal son that Jesus shares, right? I I, I love that, right? Because really it's the story of Israel. Right? Here, Here you have Israel who's been who's had the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, reveal himself to them and has walked with them as their God. And you have the nation of Israel over and over again rejecting him. It's like the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son grows up in the father's house and he sees the father's love for him consistently as he grows up. And when he reaches and comes of age, right, he goes to the father and he says, Father, give me your inheritance, And if you're not familiar with that, right, the way inheritances work, and worked then, you didn't get it until the father died. So here's what the father, here's what the son was saying to the father. I don't need you. I don't want you. I would prefer you be dead so I can have your money. That, that is what was going on there, and it's basically what Israel did, right? When, if you read 1 Samuel, when the nation of Israel goes before Samuel and says, we need a king like the other nations, and Samuel says, God is your king, they say, no, 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 we, we know that, we get that, we kind of understand that. No, we need a, we need a guy that's going to lead us in military conquest. We need a, we need a human king. Right, they rejected Right, God's lordship over them. And the son comes to the father and the, and the, the story of the prodigal son says, Dad, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And the father says, okay. And hands over his portion of the inheritance. Like, could you imagine if you were the dad in that scenario, what are you going to do? Like, get lost, dude. I just wrote you out of the will. And yet the son is given the money. What's he do? He walks off. He lives an open rebellion and sin, squanders all the money. And as he's eating amongst the pigs that he's caring for, he realizes, man, what have I done? And as he walks home and he's going to beg the father to just make him a slave on the property, the father runs to greet him, clothes him, and restores him to the family. Because that is what God does. And so as we look at this, right, we see the sons of course saying, we've done it again. We've run off, and God, we need you to restore us. And verse 6 is kind of the key idea or theme of this entire paragraph right here. Look at verse 6. Will 
you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Revive us, God. It's interesting language, isn't it? Right? At minimum, right, to use the word revive there would mean they've passed out and are unable to move. More likely, they're claiming they're spiritually dead. Now let me ask you guys something. Do things that are dead come back to life on their own? No. Right? The sons of Korah are saying, God, we are spiritually dead and bankrupt. Revive us. Revive us, God. We need you to move. And as I think about us as a church heading into Christmas, you know what I want more than anything? Right? My, mom, my mom and my aunts, and my, they do this every year. Kevin, what do you want? I don't want anything. I don't don't need anything. I'm an adult now. If I want something, I buy it. And because I don't have money, I don't want anything because I can't buy anything. You know how like when you're, as a, you're a kid, you get socks or shoes for Christmas? What are you? You're ticked. I am stoked when I get a pair of shoes. You know what I want more than anything this Christmas? I mean this wholeheartedly. I want to see a revival for the gospel. I want to see God's church wake up to the beauties of Jesus Christ. I want the world around us to look at the church and say, what the heck is going on in there? What is up with those people? I want God to awaken us from our deadness to the things of this world and the fleeting pleasures around us that we might experience a revival of God in our midst, knowing we need him and knowing that he does revive so that we might impact the world around us. You know what that impact would be? Right? Look at verse 6. that your people may rejoice in you. Wouldn't it be great if everyone was happier? And not happier because they got the new iPhone, but happier because they were satisfied that they knew their God, that they knew who they were, that their identity was rooted as a son or daughter of the creator of the universe? Wouldn't it be great if you and I looked at our sin, looked at our plight, looked at our suffering, and, and saw it for what it was, and we looked at it and we said, you know what, I am suffering. You know what, I am sinful. You know what, I, I have rejected the grace of God on my life, but now, I defy it because my God is greater than that. And he has revived me and restored to me the joy of my salvation. He sent Jesus to die in my place. And in my place he stood and I rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Wouldn't that be magnificent?
to be surrounded by a group of people that just love God. That would look at the things of this world and not have to reject them. And not have to go on some sort of holy crusade to remove themselves from the world. But that they can stand amongst the thorns and the weeds and treasure Christ above all. So as the sons of Korah request God to save them, to revive them, my prayer is that we as a church would ask that God would awaken our own hearts, that he would revive us to the joys of his grace and his mercy towards us, that his mercies would be new to us each and every day, and that as we open his word that God would speak life to us because he does. That is the promise of his word to us. And that in that rejoicing in him, the gospel would advance, that people would be saved. Marriages would be restored. Lives would be healed. And that much would be made of our God. That's what I long for. That's what the sons of Korah longed for. And I love this, right? Because they remember in the past that God has done this. They request in the present that God might move again. And then look at how they respond next. They rest in the promises of God that he will move. Look at verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. What do we do as a people seeking revival, seeking for God to move? What do we do? We do what the psalmist says he does here. He rests and he prepares to listen to what God might say to him. Many of us are way too crowded. Our minds are way too cluttered to hear God speak to us. You guys would be shocked at the number of times people will come to me and say, Pastor, I, I'm just not hearing from God right now. And of course, I always like to joke a little bit. I'm saying, well, have you opened your Bible recently? Because God has spoken in his word. But what they're always communicating in that moment is that God has not spoken to them in some sort of special revelation. Right? And, and frequently... As I, as, I, as I get to hear their story and hear what's going on, frequently the, the problem is, that God, is not that God's not speaking, but they're not listening. They're looking for something specific. They're looking for something tangible. They're looking for something maybe even audible, not realizing that the Lord is already speaking to them in some way, right? Look at, look at the son of Korah's response here, right? He says, I will listen 
and God will speak. Right? He's not, he's not saying, like, will God, will God answer our request? Right? He's, he's not wondering, hey, is God going to move? Is God going to respond to our plight? Is God going to look at us in the deadness of our sin and our rebellion and respond this time? No. There is no doubt in his mind that God is going to move. God will speak. And not only will he speak, look at what he says God's going to speak. Peace. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. He's like, not only is God going to respond to my request, but he's not going to respond in anger and wrath. He is going to come down and meet us. And when he meets us and speaks to us, he's going to speak life and peace to us. Because that is God's promise to us. It is the pattern of Scripture over and over again that if we beg of God to move, He will move and He will speak life. You can bank on it. Because it's what God does time and time again. And not only does he speak peace, but he prevents there. I love this. But let them not turn back to folly. Not only will God speak life, but he will speak life to his people and peace to them so they don't return to folly. Right? That word folly there in the Hebrew means complacency. Right? That God's people will not return to their complacency towards him, but instead that they might treasure him because they've been revived and he is their true joy. And he says, I know God will speak. I know he will restore us. I know that he will bring peace because surely salvation is near. Now we have the benefit of being on the other side of the cross. What faith being exercised by the psalmist here to say, God, we have failed, and yet you will not. Salvation is coming. Salvation is here, guys. It is present. It is ever-present because the God of Jacob is our God. And in Christ, the Messiah that the sons of Korah longed for, he has been made manifest to us and God is near and we can rest and wait because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can wait upon God to move and in the presence he has already moved and that you and I are declared justified and righteous in his sight. And we can simply rest because God has restored the peace to the Father that the sons of Korah and Israel longed for. And you may be sitting there saying, well, the sons of Korah seem so sure that God has acted and will act. Can we? Can we as God's people in 2017 long for this same movement of God and revival and expect him to move? And the answer, I'm sure you know, is yes. Look at verse 10. As his salvation is made plain and near to them, look at what he says. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. 
righteousness, and peace kiss each other. Listen to that language. Could there be anything more beautiful than God bringing his steadfast love and faithfulness and his righteousness all together in one place for us to enjoy? Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Hear that promise. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. You see the beauty here? As we wait for God, we wait with confidence because of God's character. His steadfast love, His faithfulness, His righteousness, it all revives us. It brings life to that which is dead, you and I. That God in his mercy revives us. Not because we're worthy, but because of who he is. Because he steadfastly loves, because he's faithful, because he's righteous, because he's good. The sons of Coral hope in future grace that God is going to bestow upon them because they know God's character. These things the psalmist knows to be true about God and their longing for him to be saved, they only had a shadow of these things. If you understand, right, the New Testament talks about the, the, the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices and the holidays all being a shadow of God's faithfulness and love towards his people, but that the substance of that shadow is Christ. Guys, think about this. The steadfast love of God, the faithfulness of God the Father, the mercy of God the Father, the righteousness of God the Father, where was that most made manifest? They all converged at the cross. All of it, it converged at the cross. Right, God's steadfast love was on display towards you and I and that while we were still rebelling sinners, that didn't sway his love for us and he died for us. The faithfulness of God was put on display and that Jesus, having through no fault of his own, no crime or sin being committed, faithfully followed the Father's perfect plan and will to save us. And where we could not revive and save ourselves, Jesus made a way by faithfully following through and giving up his own life for us. And that the righteousness of God was put on display at the cross because the perfection of Christ was punished for our sin so that the wrath of God might be satisfied. Meaning that God's perfect justice was satisfied and yet God's perfect love was still made manifest because of what Christ had done. 
all the things that the sons of Korah longed for God to do were done at the cross. And we have the privilege of being on the other side of that and reflecting on God's answering of this psalm to his people. Think about that. This psalm is written during the time of David. You're you're talking roughly 800 years before Jesus was born in that stable in Bethlehem. You have God's people crying out for God to move. And God did both in the present, but then he ultimately did in Christ. When we see God's character fully, we can confidently rest in the fact that he will act. And if we see God's character fully, we understand what he does, right? Look at verses 12 and 13. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. God gives good things. That's what he does. God gives good things. The ultimate thing that he gives that is good is himself. And he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. The beauty of the Old Testament, as we read it as the church, is we can see the the tension between the longing of God's people in Israel and the realization of those things in Christ. what What a privilege to stand on the other side of this momentous moment in history where God made manifest all of these things so that we might be revived. And yet there is a present application for you and I. Right? As I said, our goal during Advent is to do two things. Right? One is to reflect on all that God has done for us in Christ. And how could we not, looking at this psalm, right? Like knowing fully that Christ perfectly and faithfully executed the will of the Father to save us so that we might be revived again. But how much more do we long for Christ's return? And in that waiting, as I said earlier, long for a revival in God's church. To see a revival as God's people that we might be saved and see others saved. Church, if, you, if, if you're in here this morning and you are a disciple of Christ, God made a way and you get him. You get God. I love what John Piper says. God is the gospel. You get him. 
forgiveness of sin is a byproduct of getting him. Mercy is a byproduct of getting him. Peace is a byproduct of getting him. The Holy Spirit and the gifts that come with it are a byproduct of getting him. My prayer for us this morning, as we take communion in, as we do every Sunday and we reflect during that time, as I often ask you guys to do, is that one, we would just be so thankful for Jesus. Because God has made a way. And he has revived us. Do you understand that, guys? You were dead. If you were a, fo- if you, if you are a follower of Christ here this morning, you were dead and have been made alive in Christ. You did not revive yourself. God revived you. What grace that God would speak life to you and revive you. And in that revival, that we as a church would long for the revival of others. But that we would know that it starts with us. And that we would remember what he has done for us and that we would patiently request and wait for him to move again so that he might make a way and that we might rejoice in him. Church, if that is our prayer this morning, if our prayer is that God will revive us and make a way, here's my promise. He will. If that is truly our prayer and the desire of our hearts, we will see revival. We will see the lost repent of sin and confess Christ as Savior. We will see marriages restored. We will see relationships and friendships mended. We will see people healed. And we will see the name of God made great in this city and in our world. May we pray and request for God to move this morning. Not just this morning, though. Every day for the remainder of our time on this earth, may we ask and beg God to move so that we might see his presence again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What a great comfort and joy it is to read Psalm 85 as a church this morning. Father, restore us. Restore your glory among us. Father, forgive us of our sins and cover our iniquities. Restore to us and revive us to the joy of our salvation and Father, place in us an assurance 
and hope of knowing that it is true. God, we long for you to move in the midst of this holiday season, Lord. Bring clarity to our hearts to see your Son as the greatest gift and help our wayward hearts and wondering eyes to gaze only at Jesus. Father, thank you for the promise of your grace even when our gaze wanders and for the promise of revival and salvation of those who are dead. Salvation is near. Thank you, Father. We love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name.